Good morning. We were scheduled to talk on uh, 1 Corinthians, picking up our series that we left off last fall, but uh, as we were thinking about it, we decided instead to jump right into a different book. So this morning, we're going to do something a little different, and that is give you the setting of this book more or less in a way that uh, probably happened. It's the book of Deuteronomy, and so if you'll just hold on, I'm going to do something a little different this morning, but uh, here we go. The old man sat heavily down on his makeshift pile of pillows. At his age, sitting flat on the ground was no longer an option, especially when he wanted to write. The weather had finally relented from its ferocious heat, and now even the desert had a hint of frost in the morning, which quickly ran away from the sun as it crept up over the horizon. The arthritis in his right hand made writing especially difficult. However, he knew that finishing his book of words was so important. His intention was to give his completed book to his friend so that he could read it occasionally, preferably out loud to those who gathered so they would be reminded of who they were and, more importantly, who God is. The noises from outside began to mix into a dull roar, which by this time these sounds were comforting as he had been listening to them for nearly 40 years. The coughing, throat clearing, talking, babies crying, and eventually the far-off blaring of morning horns announcing that all should be up and getting ready for their day. He knew that this day was to be a special day. It would be his last day to, read, uh, to talk to these people. That was the main reason for him writing his book of words. Since he was uh, retiring, then the people needed the constant reminder of who they were and why they existed. He had hoped to continue on leading them for quite some time. He still felt strong, but he knew his eyesight was fading and had the definite opinion that a younger man was needed to do this job now. His wife, Zipporah, had been such a strength to him, if not a constant test of his patience and temper. Still, today, he missed her very much. She lay buried under the sand with most of the people that had trusted him and leading him out of Goshen. Even one of his sons had died, but that didn't let him stop his grief from obeying the directions that his friend had given him. After all, everyone outside of his door had lost family members. The sands of the desert were, in fact, a cemetery for them. Every one of the thousands of people that had once been slaves cruelly whipped and beaten as they hauled huge stones to construction sites. Now, they had all gone to their deaths while waiting in God's hallway. Their only joy was knowing that despite their lack of faith and stubbornness, their children would be blessed and receive the inheritance promised to them, to their people. The old man sat back and began to massage his right hand as he remembered the names of so many of them. They all were ready to leave Goshen and start a new life in a land that they had to believe was a better place than where they had grown up. Still, despite the pain and cruelty, it took time to convince them to trust him enough to pack up everything they owned and follow him. The convincing took the form of ten very powerful plagues that afflicted their slave masters, but it also showed them 
that God had not forgotten them since the days of their ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. A courier flipped open the old man's tent flap and asked if he was ready to come out and speak to the assembled people. They also knew it was his last day as their leader. In a few moments, his young, well, better said, younger friend, Joshua, would come to escort him to the hill where he could see the people spread out before him like ants busy at work in the bright morning sun. These were not the people he had let out of Egypt. These were the children of those people. The miracles their parents had seen, actually walking between towering walls of water. The children had been terrified of the sound and wind, but their parents told them to close their eyes, and before they knew it, they had crossed and stood on dry ground. When they had all crossed, the old man had put his hands together, and the waters collapsed upon each other, and the fear of Pharaoh's chariots were drowned, and they were never to trouble them again. Now they expected to be guided to this new land by the presence of God, which appeared as a pillar of cloud. All they had to do was follow it and be faithful, but trouble almost at once came to the surface. A lack of belief, despite all of the miracles they had seen. God's grace responded with bread appearing every morning like dew on the flowers, quail seemingly rushed to sacrifice themselves so they could have meat, Then there was the day that the recon team they had sent out returned and said that there was no way they could take this new land as it was inhabited by giants. The problem was that they were comparing these Canaanites with themselves rather than with Jehovah. Two faithful men were identified that day, Joshua and the young Caleb. They now led the hosts of Israel as they geared up to cross the Jordan into the new land. God had given them guidelines, how to live, 10 laws or commandments that provided the ethical basis for their lives. In addition, there were so many other things they had to do, laws that told them that whenever they stopped for a period of time, they were instructed to erect a tabernacle, and soon the sounds of animals being killed as sacrifices for sins became part of their regular lifestyle. He had many talks with their God usually on the sides of that mountain that they traveled around and around. A cloud, often with thunder and lightning, would descend upon the mountain, and he knew that God had come to talk to him. Some, they didn't like being the, thinking that he was the only one who heard God. Over time, different men and women had tried to assert themselves and take leadership away from him, but each time, well, let's just say it didn't go very well for them. Forty years they had, because of their lack of faith, wandered through this desert that often made their neighbors uncomfortable as well. In fact, some decided that they were trespassing and openly challenged their right to be there. That also didn't go well for them. But to be truthful, it didn't always go well for the old man either. There had been that day at Meribah when the people were demanding that they return to Egypt, to slavery. Can you believe it? because they were thirsty and actually believed that Jehovah had brought them out here simply to let them die. The old man had had enough on that day. God had told him that he would provide water for the people and that it would flow from rocks just to show that nothing is too hard for Jehovah. However, the old man had lost his temper and struck the rock with his staff as if to say, 
I am providing water for you. Jehovah was not happy with him. It was because of this rash act that God had told him that he would not step a foot onto his promised land. This was the most difficult thing that he had to deal with in his life. After 40 years of leading this recalcitrant and obstreperous people, after 40 years of faithful obedience and face-to-face talks with this God, this was the thanks he got? It was a bitter reality for him. At first, Joshua thought he was mistaken or joking when he told him that he, Joshua, would be leading the people as they crossed the Jordan River. But when he saw the old man's eyes, the bushy eyebrows, the haggard expression, and the glimmer of tears ready to roll down those cheeks that had once burnished bright with the Shekinah glory of God, he knew that this was not the old man's choice. Sometime soon, that old man was going to die, 120 years old. Nothing to feel sorry about. Aaron and Miriam, the old man's brother and sister, they had also been buried under the sand. No one that he had known well was still alive. One of the drawbacks of living so long. No, he had been blessed with a long life and with many things. But most of all, he had been blessed with a relationship with Jehovah like no other man before him. Now it was time to let go and turn over the story to someone else. All the more reason for him to finish his book. All it was, really, was a series of his sermons to the people reminding them of their need to respond to Jehovah's grace with loyalty and love. If they did that, they would be fine. But God had already told them that there wasn't going to be, uh, that they weren't going to be faithful. But he had also told the old man that he would never forsake these people. Grace, grace, grace. God's discipline could be tough. But ultimately, it was all about undeserved gentleness and love. Grace. Someday, God would bring a prince, a man like no other, to lead his people. This man would make everything new again. Perhaps next year? Who knew? Just then, the horns blared again, and the old man's tent flap was pulled back, and he could see the bronze shin guards and sandals of Joshua awaiting him. The sun glinted off the gold of the Ark of the Covenant as the Levites gently handled it. Moses rolled up his papers, went out, and put his book into the Ark as God had commanded. Somebody would someday read this book and hear the stories of the miracles God had done to lead his people out of slavery and into a land flowing with milk and honey. Hopefully they would be moved to worship and praise the Lord their God. That indeed would bring joy to this old man. All right. Well, if you haven't picked up on that yet, this is just a way of going through the tale of Deuteronomy. As we look at this book, I hope you have your Bibles open or your phones on, however you're looking at the scriptures this morning. Uh, We're going to start in chapter one today. And I couldn't think of a better way to, to introduce the themes of this book than in this story. It's Moses, at the end of his life, putting together a series of sermons that are designed to remind the people of Israel exactly what had happened. You see, the reminder was necessary because, as I just read, uh, the people that were going across that Jordan River into the new land to 
conquer the Canaanites, and as God said, to live in homes that they had not built and to till gardens that they had not planted, they needed a reminder because they would face enormous challenges. They would be, receive tremendous blessings. And if they were not reminded on a continual basis of why this all had happened, of who they were, and most importantly, of why they should worship the one true God, then things were going to fall apart. And if you know your Old Testament history, the fall apart, they did. They didn't read this as they were instructed to do. But I just want to stop for a second. As we think about the book of Deuteronomy, if you're like me, when I was in the meeting last uh, Tuesday, and we were thinking, what could we preach through? And someone said, hey, let's preach through the book of Deuteronomy. My first impulse was like, really? Seriously? Wow. Uh, okay. Uh, an Old Testament book. But when I got home and I really started getting into this, even though I'd been through the book of Deuteronomy, I don't know how many times, I was amazed. This is quite a book. Uh, in fact, I would like to tell you some things about this book that really set it apart from almost any other book in the Old Testament. So as you can tell, um, we're starting this book, and I, was, I mentioned it before, but originally this book was not called Deuteronomy. It was called the Book of Words. Uh, the Hebrews, the Jews, still call it that. It is the Sefer de Barim. It is the Book of Words. And the reason it's called that is because the first couple of words of chapter 1, verse 1, are really Ela Haba Darim, meaning these words, the words. And that was a good enough title for the people who originally uh, contained the Torah, the Pentateuch, the five books that Moses wrote. But sometime between the Old and the New Testament, a group of people arose and said, you know, almost everybody in the known world today speaks Greek, so we're going to change it, the title. We're going to translate the Hebrew into Greek, and that translation is called the Septuagint, and that just simply means 70. Uh, the legend has it that 70 scholars did the translation. And because in this book, the fifth book of Moses' writings, the law is mentioned and re-given. In other words, Ten Commandments was originally in the book of Exodus. Now they're again in the book of Deuteronomy. We're going to call it the book of second law, or the law given again. So Deuteronomy is just literally the second law. I like the book of words better because I think it captures and it encapsulates exactly what Moses was hoping to achieve by writing this. It is undoubtedly the most powerful theological book in all of the Old Testament. Daniel Block, a professor of Old Testament at Wheaton, says Deuteronomy offers the most systematic presentation of theological truth in the Old Testament, perhaps only second to Romans in the New Testament. This theme of this book appears to be Moses' call for people to respond to God's grace, as I said, with loyalty and love. In fact, Deuteronomy is really nothing more than a series of Moses' sermons to the people of Israel strung together by short narrative section. Uh, let, me, let me state that again. When you pick up Deuteronomy and you look at it, what you have is what we're going to be looking at today, chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. And then you have, picking up here, uh, we could even say from 1-6 on, all the way to chapter 4 is one sermon. 
Then there's a short narrative section, and then there's another sermon, and then a short narrative section, and then another sermon, and so forth. And these sermons, we know that Moses is the author of them, but it's obvious that someone came along sometime after Moses and put these sermons together. Uh, we, you know this is very obvious because when you get to chapter 34, we're told about Moses' death and how he died, where he died, and so forth. Uh, Moses couldn't have written that, right? And there are things in the narratives that give us a hint that somebody put these together for our benefit, right? So that's something to remember. Uh, it's a series of sermons. So let's just say this. Let's say that you had a favorite pastor, and he had been with you for 40 years, 50 years, and he decided that on his exit, he was going to collect his four greatest sermons and put them together and for you to always remember. The other thing to think about is the fact that you weren't necessarily going to have a new pastor. There wasn't going to be another person who could equal the relationship with the Lord that Moses had to replace those sermons. So you wanted to have these sermons with you at all times. Unfortunately, what Moses probably wasn't counting on was the role that sin was going to play in the lives of his people. How the very reminder of their relationship with God, their covenant uh, creed with the Lord, would be something that would get in the way of the lifestyle that they wanted to live. So they ignored it. In fact, I would argue this morning that we're not much different in the church. Maybe not because of sin, but just because we really aren't excited about the Old Testament too much. Um, I don't know about you, I'm not sure if I've ever sat through a series of sermons on the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, we ignore it, and therefore we rob ourselves of some of the greatest uh, theological truths in all of Scripture. So let's look at some things that make this book so unique. Uh, some important things to know, first of all, is that this is Jesus' favorite book in the Old Testament. Now, you, you know, I say that, and it's, it's kind of a, a strange statement to make because really Jesus didn't have access to a New Testament. It hadn't been written yet, right? So when Jesus is referring to the Word of God, to the Bible, he's only referring to the Old Testament. And of all the Old Testament, his favorite book to quote is Deuteronomy, albeit in its Septuagint form, in its Greek form, but still, it's Deuteronomy. And that makes sense because when Jesus is asked questions by those who are challenging his incarnation, his statements that he is the Son of God, and they're doing so by asking him, what is the greatest commandment? They're challenging him on a point of law to see if this man who claims to be the incarnate God actually knows the law. And what does he do? He distills the entire Mosaic law down to one phrase, right? He says, well, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your body, with all your soul, and your neighbor as yourself. The entire law is given in that short statement. It's so Deuteronomic. When Moses is writing, and we're going to see this as we walk through here, this is his emphasis. Love the Lord your God. In fact, Deuteronomy is one of the few books in all of the Old Testament, especially in the Pentateuch, in which we are told, love your God. He says that in chapter 6, verse 5, chapter 11, verse 1, and so forth. 
Love your God. Love your God. Love your God. This is what Moses wants his people to understand. This is the theme that Jesus picks up and says this is what is most important. Love him how? With everything that you are. Your mind, your body, your soul. And then don't forget, it's not really complete until you love your neighbor as yourself. Secondly, this book separates itself from the rest of the Pentateuch and Moses' sermons uh, years after the other four were written. In other words, he wrote Genesis, you know, Exodus, and so forth. Uh, and those were complete. Those were sufficient. It wasn't like there was a problem with that. But he had a lot of years to go. And when he gets to the end of his 40 years, I always think of Moses' life as easily divisible into three sets of 40 years, right? 40 years he lives uh, in Pharaoh's house. He is uh, a man of great uh, privilege. He has the best education and so forth. He is sort of, in a sense, a uh, redeemed Hebrew taken out of the reeds. Remember in the basket, we all love that favorite story in Sunday school. And he lives there until he begins to grow a conscience. And he sees his fellow Hebrews being mistreated in slavery with the whole story about straw and bricks. And eventually he comes to the point where he kills an Egyptian guard, a foreman on the work site. And he escapes and he fears for his life. And the second 40 years, he's in the land of Midian, where we don't know a lot about what's happening there, but he spends his time as a shepherd he gets married, he has children, and he stays in that role until that really uh, strange day where he comes across a bush that is burning. And he is told that he is on holy ground. <clears throat> and God commissions him and his brother Aaron to go to Pharaoh and demand that the people that he loves, his own Hebrew people, be released from slavery. And then the third 40-year set, of course, is from the Exodus, when he leads the children of Israel out across the Red Sea and into the wilderness and leads them through their sin periods and all the many events that happen to where we're at today at the beginning of the book of Deuteronomy, where the people are ready, uh, they're, they're put themselves together, they're going to do a conquest, and they're going to cross that Jordan River, albeit with a different leader. So three sets of 40, 120 years. Book of Deuteronomy is most assuredly written at the end of his 40-year period. He puts these sermons together at this point, fully aware that his people are getting ready to cross that Jordan River. There's going to be all kinds of uh, opposition, militarily, uh, culturally, um, even into whom they may marry, right? He wants them to stay pure. And so he's trying to give them things that would see them through those periods of time, not to be forgotten. Uh, Samuel refers to this book. It's, it's a really uh, amazing thing. As it goes through the Old Testament, the book of Deuteronomy is picked up again and again in different themes. Uh, I was saying earlier it was put together uh, by someone else, we probably think that it might have been put together possibly as early as during the reign of, jo of Joshua, right after the conquest, or as late as during the time of Elijah and Elisha. Um, we just don't know for sure. However, it's certainly put together by the time of King David. 
Uh, he has reference to the law in many occasions. And as I was just saying, we know this because Samuel refers to it in 1 Kings 2. And I'll just read that real quickly. In verse 2, he says, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. This is David. Uh, I'm getting ready to die, is what David is saying. Be strong. Show yourself a man and keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in the ways, keeping his statutes. Then he says, uh, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons pay close attention to this way, to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. This is a repeated theme throughout the Old Testament. This is what Deuteronomy says. I'm your God, you're my people. If you do what I say, I will bless you. If you disobey me, I will curse you. They all knew that. Samuel, David, uh, Solomon. Didn't keep them from sinning, but they certainly had the understanding of what God was saying to them. The prophets reflect Deuteronomy as well. In the prophets, we see the reiteration of the curses of Deuteronomy 28 and the promises of renewal in Deuteronomy 30. Malachi the last book of the Old Testament, chapter 4, says, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statues and rules that I commanded to you at Horeb for all of Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to the fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Again, another Deuteronomic promise. In Hebrews, in the New Testament, chapter 3, it says, For those who have heard and yet rebelled, was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses, and with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness, and to whom he did swear that they would not enter into his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. The author of Hebrews is putting together an argument talking about the need for those who believe in Jesus Christ to be obedient, that God did take his chosen people, and because of their disobedience, he disciplined them. He let them fall in the desert. He let them be a disgrace to their neighbors because they were not following him in purity. We also see the book of Deuteronomy and the book of Psalms. Um, a lot of people see that the psalmist is basing almost all of their statements of theology upon this book. We see that in the Torah Psalms, like Psalm 1, Psalm 19, 116, the wisdom Psalms, like Psalm 111. So rooted is, uh, are the Psalms in the book of Deuteronomy that unless someone accepts this book as inspired by God, you have no right to say that the Psalms are inspired. They go hand in hand. Uh, the psalmist loved the book of Deuteronomy. So what we're seeing is that the people of Israel, no matter what their obedience level was to God, they loved the book of Deuteronomy. They loved these sermons of Moses. They probably identified with these sermons more than any other aspect of the Torah. Uh, a lot of numbers in Leviticus is, is just focused on the law, how we should live, uh, what we should wear, what we should eat, uh, how we should go to bed, what we do when we rise up, how we should teach our children. But it's Deuteronomy that focuses upon the covenant relationship of God with his people. Sometimes people have such high esteem of Moses 
the friend of God. If you remember, Moses is the one man that it says that he could stand at his tent and talk with God. Uh, that they want to see sometimes that Jesus is sort of a second Moses. But that really is, in fact, somewhat insulting to Christ, right? Because Jesus is God himself. You know, that would be like saying God is standing at a door talking to himself. Uh, what would be better said is that the Apostle Paul is more like the second Moses. Paul bases so much of his writings in the New Testament on Deuteronomy. You see him quoting it everywhere. And why? Well, it makes sense. Because Paul, his whole focus of his writings, especially in the book of Romans, is contrasting the law with grace. What does the law have to do with the grace that Christ provides? How do they work together? Um, and that is, the, that is a huge focus of that book. And what is the role of the Jew in this new paradigm along with the Gentile? How does this uh, covenant of grace fit all the people that were dealing with it in the New Testament. Paul is writing with the advantage of being on the other side of the cross from Moses. Moses is writing with the hope that, wondering if, and Moses is right, or Paul is writing, looking backwards, saying we have the certainty of. We know that this is what happened. We know that all was fulfilled that was predicted. Um, much of Romans is focused on answering the question, what is the relationship of Moses' law to the grace that salvation in Christ brings? And as you read through the book of Deuteronomy, you're going to be amazed at how often the theme of grace comes up and comes up and comes up. Lastly, we just want to understand the fact that uh, what Moses is doing here in writing Deuteronomy is not unlike how the Apostle John wrote his gospel, the fourth gospel. As I said, Moses is writing this last book from his perspective of 40 years' experience in leading his people. Uh, and he's picking uh, pertinent facts, things that he wants them to remember as they go forward across the Jordan River, as they go into the land of Canaan. He doesn't want them to forget, and he, he intends that this is going to be read over and over again. As we get to uh, Deuteronomy chapter 31, we're going to see the command is from the Lord that this book uh, be put into the Ark of the Covenant and read at the Feast of Booths every seven years to the people. Read aloud. My imagination says that they probably got together and they just, throughout the week of the Feast of Booths, read Deuteronomy, probably read a sermon a day to the people. This is their inheritance. It would be like an American identifies being an American because we have a 4th of July, a celebration, a part of that, where we read the Constitution out loud or the Declaration of Independence. It just reminds us of who we are, how we got here, what we're about. And so for the, that period of time, they had to be read again. So Moses is writing from that unique perspective. I've already done everything that I'm going to do in my life. My life is pretty much over, but here are my last words, people. I want you to understand where I'm coming from. John, similarly, you think, well, what does that have to do with John? John, similarly, of all the gospel writers, is writing the last account of Christ's life. Matthew, Mark, and Luke have probably already written their gospels. They're already circulating. People are getting to it. I think that John was well aware 
of what they had written. Probably had read it for himself, but now, probably in Ephesus, where he lived, he is trying to think of what hasn't been said. What hasn't been said? So as you read through Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you get a sort of a chronological feel to those Gospels. They're trying to, in some way, uh, bring forth events that happened in Christ's life in some order. You know, Matthew and Luke start right with the birth of Christ, right? And they roll right through. Uh, Mark kind of shortens everything up. John, he almost certainly jumps right to the Passion Week. He says, well, those guys have already written about those aspects. I don't need to go there. And he uniquely picks the material that he think, will think that would best stand us as believers from his perspective in living the Christian life. That's how come there's a great parallel between the two. And when I look at John, even in his first chapter, he's making his argument as for why he's writing this. Verse 15, it says, John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, here comes, uh, he, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. There's that theme of grace, right? For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who was at the Father's side. He has made him known. John is trying to say, listen, you have Moses. As a Jewish person, you've been used to listening to the book of Deuteronomy being read over and over and over again. If you've been faithful, if you've come to the feasts, and if you've had it in your synagogue schools and so forth, it is the most well-known of all of the Old Testament books. But now there's a new book. The new book is the Gospel of Jesus Christ, and it's John's purpose is to write it, showing that there is an interrelationship between the two, a correlation between the Old Testament and the New Testament, between Moses and between Christ. And he says, I'm going to bring the truth of this now in my gospel to you. I don't think you can overestimate how powerful this book is. And like I said, unfortunately, largely, the modern church has missed its message. Moses writes this book to be read aloud. That's another thing. It is a series of sermons. So if you've got this at home and you're having devotions in your living room and you're sitting in front of a fire with a cup of coffee and you're thinking, this is great. I'm loving this. Well, do this. Read it aloud, right? Have your family devotions aloud and get to those sections, which are obviously the homilies, the, the sermons of Moses, and just read them like they were written. They're powerful. He's trying to get across a message in each one, but yet there's continuing themes in each one. Um, it had to be understood that way. When I was a, a first in ministry, I heard a challenge one time, and I, and I tried to do this. Uh, this is a little off track. Uh, Charles Dickens, I don't know if you've read any of his books from way back when, but Charles Dickens, uh, great writer that he is, uh, did not know what a period was, right? in his literature. I mean, he just, his sentences could be this long, uh, literally. And I had a homiletics professor that challenged us and said, if you can read Dickens aloud so that he makes sense to those that are listening, then you can preach any sermon you want. So my kids grew up listening to me read, you know, 
uh, David Copperfield and, you know, Pickwick Papers and all those kind of things allowed. And I found that challenge to be really uh, liberating for my tongue, giving me an ad ability to put thoughts, disparate thoughts together and so forth. Moses, when you come to this, if you can read this book aloud so that the people in your household understand it, you're doing a great thing. It's not that Moses didn't know a period, but of course periods weren't invented when he was writing this. So you have a little bit of a challenge there yourself. Moses, unfortunately, is sometimes given the title of the lawgiver. But that's not who he is. He's a pastor. He loves his people. Isaiah 63 describes Moses as a shepherd, as a man who cares for his people. He saw them as his flock. You remember, he, in that second 40-year period, he was literally a shepherd. He took care of his father-in-law's livestock. He knew what it was like to shepherd animals and then eventually to shepherd people. He had a shepherd's heart for those that he was ministering to, to those that he was writing to. Uh, that was Moses' entire point in writing Deuteronomy. He cares. Uh, in Isaiah, he says, he brought them out of the sea and the shepherds of his flock where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit? He gathers his people and he pleads with them to be faithful to the Lord as they are about to enter the promised land. Well, without further ado, let's just read our section for today. It's just an introductory uh, section, yeah, but we do want to spend a few minutes on it. Starting in chapter 1, verse 1. These are the words that Moses, there's that Ella de Barim, right? These are the words, the book of words, that Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan in the wilderness, in the Arabah, outside Suf, between Paran and Tophel, Laban and Hazaroth and Dizabab. It is 11 days' journey from Horeb by the way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. In the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, Moses spoke to the people of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him and a commandment to them after he had defeated Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in the Ashtaroth and in Edrei, beyond the Jordan in the land of Moab. Moses undertook to explain this law, saying, The Lord our God has said to us in Horeb, You have stayed long enough at this mountain. Turn and take your journey. And go to the hill country of the Amorites, and to all their neighbors in the Arabah, and to the hill country, and in the lowland, and in the Negev by the sea coast, the land of the Canaanites in Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. See, I have set the land before you. Go in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give to them and their offspring after them. Now, if you're just reading that and you haven't necessarily done much study on that, you would probably just burn right through that and think, well, great introduction, Moses. I don't have any idea what in the world you're talking about here. But in the first few verses here, Moses is just kind of recounting their history real quickly. He's giving them the way stops that the children of Israel took coming out of Egypt, going to the promised land. Remember, that's what they originally were intending to do. Just march down through the Negev, come right across the Red Sea, come up on the east side of the Jordan River, and then they were going to cross and take that promised land. And all of these places that are being mentioned are just stops along the way. 
But what happened? They get right to Kadesh Barnea, right? Not too far from the Jordan, and the people rebelled against God. And up to that point, I think most people believe it was about an 11-day journey, 11 days with this huge group of people. It wouldn't have been much further to just get to the Jordan, but instead they took a 40-year detour, right? That 40 years was designed to fulfill God's curse upon them that not one of those people, despite all the miracles they had seen, despite crossing that Red Sea, despite the plagues, despite the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire, the bronze serpent, all of that stuff, despite all of that, they did not believe. They wanted to go back uh, to Egypt. And God said, you're going to die out here. And only your children will inherit what I have for you. And so that's what Moses is doing. He's just giving that. When he says these key words and places, the people know exactly what is, what is happening here, right? He knows, they know that he is reminding them of their parents' unbelief. And do not repeat it. But then he gives them a little bit of a history lesson, which didn't happen probably that long ago. But he says, remember, just to show his power, God helped us defeat Og. And we'll get to Og in a little bit later in the book, like chapter 3, so I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on it. But Og was probably one of the last giants in the world. Huge man. And as an act of faith, God instructed them to go up against this Amorite, and they killed him and his armies. He was showing them that God was still on their side. God would be faithful. So Moses is just recounting the fact that they had already taken care of some bad guys on this side of the Jordan. And then it gets their marching orders. And I love this part. Verse 6. The Lord our God said to us in Horeb, You've stayed long enough at this mountain. Okay? <laughs> He's like, all right, you guys. This 40-year stuff, it's over. You know, they kept coming back to Sinai over and over and over and over. And he's saying to these, the children now who are adults, you've stayed long enough. The time is now. Uh, the heavenly clock has ticked. Turn and take your journey. And, go to, and then he just lists where they're going to go. The promise of the land. There is no underestimating the promise of the land as part of that covenant between God and his people Israel. It's going to be mentioned over and over again. So if you want to be really comfortable in Deuteronomy, you should get a map out, a biblical map, either look in the back of your Bible or go do an atlas or do a Google search and make sure you understand what the land was that was promised. And I'll tell you, just even though it's not really going to be a focus of our study in Deuteronomy, that the full land inheritance was never achieved. Children of Israel took all the land that they thought they wanted, but it wasn't all the land that God describes here, right? But that's what God is saying to them, is the covenant is still in place. That which I promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I'm promising to you. Are you ready? And in my mind, you know, it's way out of historical relevance, but I think of a bunch of people in sports cars sitting on a starting line, turning on their engines, you know, just waiting for that chance to go across and just get across that starting line. Well, that's what these guys are ready to do. They're going into the unknown with a different leader, with a different person. Uh, it's an amazing, amazing statement. I have set these possessions before you. Go in. 
take possession of the land that the Lord swore to your fathers. What a command. What a, what a promise. Well, why study this? Why, why is this relevant to us? Let me just end by saying a couple of things here. As I studied this book this past week, I couldn't help but see some parallels between Moses and Israel and we at Parkview. You think that's really strange. We haven't worn shin guards and sandals for quite some time, but maybe we'll get back to that in the summer. We've endured our own wilderness journeys this year, haven't we? It hasn't taken 40 years, thank goodness. But for some of us, we feel like it's been a tough time. We've been waiting and watching and waiting and watching what God's going to do. Um, we just got done listening to a series of sermons on renewal that our elders and pastors want us to understand and to live by. That's where Moses has these people. They've been renewed. We're going to go into this land. We're not the same people that we were when we came out of Egypt. Also, Moses and Israel experienced a leadership change before the next step in their journey. That's huge. They've been following Moses, this man of God. Uh, all the challenges to his leadership, even by those of his brother and sister, have done nothing but result in disaster, right? God had made it clear, this is my man, Moses. He's faithful. And now God is saying, Moses, not now. You're done. We're going to read in chapter 3, uh, What's going on here? I, I just, I love this story. I was going over it with my wife this morning. And in chapter 32 as well, at the end of the book, it's heartbreaking, actually. Uh, you know you know the story, and I mentioned it in that little narrative at the start. Moses at the rock, when he strikes it with his staff and water comes gushing out, he sinned at that point. Uh, he took God's glory for his own in front of the people because he lost his temper. And I've often thought about that, and I think, man, why in the world can someone like King David commit gross sin, adultery, murder, and so forth, and yet God forgives him and lets him keep his kingdom and so forth? And Moses seemingly has been a faithful man, and this one sin keeps him from going to the promised land after all this stuff that he has worked his way through. And we're going to cover this, but I'm just going to take a second. I love this line here. Well, I really don't love it. It scares me to death, actually. But uh, he says, And I pleaded with the Lord at that time, this is Moses, saying, O Lord God, you've only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. Just now, out of all these things I've seen, they're nothing compared to what I'm going to see when we cross that Jordan. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who could do such works and mighty acts as yours? Please let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, that good hill country in Lebanon. But the Lord was angry with me because of you and would not listen to me. And then here it is. And the Lord said to me, enough from you. Do not speak to me of this matter again. Ouch. God has had enough. I said in the little narrative that God's discipline can be tough. And it is. We as God's people, I feel like we're marshaled as a church. And our crossing the Jordan is winning the people of North Liberty. We've got all these communities around us. We have marching orders in the sense of the great commandment in front of us. 
go and reach everywhere. We don't want to be those that are trying to take God's glory for ourselves. We want to work together in unity, in reliance, in humility, and we want to live in grace, grace, grace. Finally, we have the advantage of being able to be encouraged and instructed by the same book of words as the Israelites had, even though it's been nearly 3,000 years since it was written. Isn't it amazing that this book could have such relevance to us today as old as it is? But due to God's sovereignty, he has preserved his word, and he wants us to listen to it being read aloud so that it can strengthen us and fire us up for what is coming. The only question is really, as a people, as people of North Campus, is are we ready? Well, I hope when you come back in the weeks to follow as we preach through this book, you're going to be fired up to hear what the Lord said to Moses and through Moses to us. Listening to Deuteronomy as we close, comes as close, excuse me, as we can to standing on that mountain with Moses and hearing the Lord speak directly to us. I hope you'll enjoy this series. It should be just absolutely powerful.